0: We are technically in our third week of a sermon series called Teach Us to Pray. There's a little section of scripture where the disciples have watched Jesus get up early in the morning to go out and pray. They've watched him in other venues go spend time in prayer with his father. And though they were disciples of John, um, they actually went and followed Jesus. And when they saw him living this lifestyle of prayer, they turned to him and they said, hey, Jesus, will you teach us to pray? And the answer um, to their request was that he taught them the Lord's Prayer. And so what we've been doing over the last several weeks is we've been taking a look at the various clauses of the Lord's Prayer. And so the first thing we looked at is how the very first thing Jesus starts with is this, um, the name of God or what they are invited to call him, which is our Father, our Father. And so part of what Jesus is doing with the disciples is he's saying it's very important that you realize when you come into the presence of God that he's not a tyrant, he's not an impatient government official, but rather he is a good father who loves his children and desires to give them good gifts. And so, of course, what that means for us as God's children as well, for those of us who trust in his son Jesus, that we also are invited to come into God's presence as a good father, that we come to a father who loves us and who wants what's best for us. It's a game-changing idea. And then the next thing that Jesus teaches them in the context of the Lord's Prayer is to pray, hallowed be thy name, hallowed be thy name. And we took a little look at the name of God, which is I am. You see that in the book of Exodus. It's where God introduced himself to Moses. And essentially, he said, my name is I am that I am, or I am who I am, whether anybody else likes it or not. It's not up to me to change. It's up to them to change. And then this week, we're going to be looking at the third clause in the Lord's Prayer, which is thy kingdom come. Before we jump into this, however, let me take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you um, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you revealed yourself to us through scripture, that you revealed yourself to us um, through prophets and through poets and through historians. Father, I thank you that um, most fully you have revealed yourself to us uh, through the person of your son, Jesus. And so, Father, it's in Jesus' name that we come uh, before you today. In his name we pray, amen. Back in 2003, a movie came out called Bruce Almighty. Bruce Almighty, I'm not necessarily recommending it, although if you happen to see the USAA version or whatever the on-TV version is, it's, you know, they're you know, relatively clean. But it's basically um, starring uh, Jim Carrey, if you know Jim Carrey, and Morgan Freeman. And uh, Morgan Freeman plays a God character in the movie, and uh, Bruce... Uh, almighty or bruce plays is played by jim carrey and his character is a basically a a reporter on a tv station up in buffalo new york and so essentially in the movie he uh, really wants to be an anchor man he wants to be one of the guys that sits behind the desk on tv and so he's working for that position and hoping for that position even praying for that position and then he's passed over for uh, another uh, person on staff there and he's so angry he gets so frustrated that he loses his temper he freaks out He gets fired, and ultimately, in anger, he yells up to the heavens, and he says, God is the one who should get fired, right? You're the one that should get fired. Later that day, he gets a message from God, and he shows up to this warehouse because God has invited him there to meet him, and he meets Morgan Freeman, who claims to be God, and Morgan Freeman says, hey, I will gladly give you my powers of being God for a little while if you think you can do it better than I can. And so Bruce, uh, initially, um, in disbelief, you know, of course, thinks that Morgan Freeman is crazy, but then realizes that Freeman really is God, and so he accepts uh, these powers that uh, God offers him. So he's omnipotent. And so, of course, some of the first things that he does is he walks across water and he does all sorts of things to make his girlfriend like him more. And he does all these other things in order to try to get the job that he wanted. Eventually, he gets the other guy fired. And then, of course, he begins using the power that God has entrusted him with in more and more outlandish ways until by the end of the movie, the city of Buffalo, New York has descended into chaos. And in a moment of desperation, Uh, Bruce turns back to God and says, you can have your powers back. I don't want them anymore. We look at the, the story of Scripture from the beginning to the end, and it's a similar story. It's a story of us trying to implement our own kingdoms, to choose our own kingdom over God. And we see that same chaos ensue. In Genesis chapter three, we see this story of Adam and Eve in relationship with God, living in his kingdom, living under his kingship, and yet they're faced with a decision that interestingly enough is introduced by Satan, but God doesn't remove the possibility away from them either. They can either continue to live life with God as their king, or they can establish their own kingdom. Some of you are familiar with the fateful decision that they made They decide that God can't be trusted, that in some way he's holding out on them. And so they set out on their own. Just like in the movie Bruce Almighty, however, the end result is chaos. And ever since that moment, humanity has sought to free themselves from God's rule and from his reign. Instead of praying, thy kingdom come, we pray, my kingdom come. All this has led to brokenness that we can all pretty easily agree on. The kingdom that humanity has created apart from God is filled with attachment disorder and abuse. It's filled with abandonment and abortion and oppression. It's filled with schizophrenia and subway bombings. We see the exploitation of the weak. We see pollution, greed, abuse of political power, broken marriages, abandoned children, racism, and the willful neglect of the poor and of the needy. We all know intuitively or objectively that something is wrong with this world that we live in. Something's wrong and we know it. And yet as humans, it is inevitable for us to dream and think of a better world. We have an idealized version in our minds of what that world looks like. It's why C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity could write, if we find ourselves or in ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were actually made for another world. So how do we come to that world? Or maybe more appropriately, how does that world come to us? We must pray for God's kingdom to come. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. I've read this quite a few times over the last couple of months, but I'm going to read it again. Jesus, again, is primarily speaking to his disciples, and he tells them this. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So Jesus instructs his disciples and he instructs us to pray, your kingdom come. But the question is, what does that even mean? In order to find that out, we've got to look through the pages of Scripture, and what we see, at least in part, is the following. It's this, that the kingdom of God is already, and it's also not yet. Let's look at the first half of that, the fact that the kingdom of God is already, in some respects, here. In the book of Daniel, we read about these three young Israelites who choose faithfulness to God despite the cost. In Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those names are probably familiar to many of us who grew up in the church, they refuse to bow down to a state-sanctioned Babylonian idol. And as a result, they're thrown into a furnace uh, to be made an example of for the entire city of Babylon. But miraculously, before King Nebuchadnezzar's eyes, God rescues those young men from the fire. This then prompts Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, is the most powerful king of the most powerful kingdom of all of the earth, to send out a decree to his entire kingdom, saying this, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. That was Daniel 3. In Daniel chapter 4, we read another account of King Nebuchadnezzar, again, the most powerful king of the most powerful kingdom that the world has ever known at this point in time. This time, we see Nebuchadnezzar, despite his earlier proclamation of God's kingdom, has become prideful. And as he looked at his great city, he discounted God's role in all of that and God cursed him with a temporary form of insanity called lycanthropy, which is a real, uh, a real malady. It's a psychological state where you think you're an animal and behave like one. After some time, God restored him to his right mind, and Nebuchadnezzar issued another statement this time again throughout his kingdom. He said this, At the end of the day's I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised, and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Remember God's name is I am that I I am. I will be who I will be. And none of you can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Again, the most powerful king of the most powerful kingdom on earth had learned that God's kingdom was greater than his we could look at more stories of God's kingdom and his kingship being over all others we could look at God freeing the Israelites from Egypt many of us know that story Pharaoh discovered all too late that there was a king who was more powerful than he was we could look at the story of Elisha when he's surrounded by the army of Aram but is unperturbed because he sees what his servant cannot, that the hills are filled with the army of God ready to deliver them. In 2 Kings 6, we read that account. We read it from the perspective of Elijah's servant seeing the physical army of the enemy approaching, but unable to see the far greater heavenly army that surrounded the man of God. Here's what we read in that passage when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early in the morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, no, my lord. What shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. At this point, the servant surely thought that Elisha was crazy. Verse 17 And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes. And he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. In Proverbs, we see God's kingdom exemplified even in chance. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. We see God's kingdom at play in our life's trajectory as well, right? Those of you who are in this room who are honest with yourselves, you know that this has been at play in your life. Proverbs 16.8 says this, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Clearly, God is in charge. He's sovereign over the minuscule nooks and crannies of life, and he is sovereign over the large events of life as well. In the Psalms, we see this same affirmation of God's kingdom. We see it in Psalm 139. I quote that fairly regularly from here up front. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Again, later, David affirms God's kingdom in Psalm 103. We read it this morning. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. What each of these stories and psalms and proverbs teach us is that God is the king of kings, that he is in charge, that God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over kings, he's sovereign over queens, he's sovereign over nations, he's sovereign over great cities. God is ruling over human history and even over things that look like utter and complete chance like dice. And the plans that we make god is already ruling he always has been but the question then of course for those of us who are thinking ahead a little bit if god is already ruling over human history then why did jesus teach us to pray that kingdom come and the answer is because even though the kingdom of god is already in some ways it is also not yet here in other ways look at matthew 13. again Jesus talked about the kingdom almost more than he talked about anything else, and so it's almost impossible to give one sermon on what the kingdom means. It's, you know, he uses all these analogies, all these metaphors. But here in Matthew 13, he says this, "'He put another parable before them, saying, "'The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed "'that a man took and sowed in his field. "'It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, "'it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, "'so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches.'" What this parable and others like it tell us is that in some real way, the kingdom of God is in process or it's started and it's coming, it's on the way, it's already and it's not yet. Is God sovereign? Without a doubt. Is the world still filled with brokenness and suffering and even evil? Definitely. Is God going to make things right? I guess that's the question. The answer is absolutely. And he's actually beginning with you and he's beginning with me. When our kids were little, Krista and I ruled over them. They were living in our kingdom. For the most part, they ate whatever food we put in front of them. They went to bed when we put them to bed. They only watched on TV what we allowed them to watch on TV. We took them to church. We read the Bible with them and prayed with them each night. We signed them up for soccer or for cross country uh, or for kinder music. We ruled over their external world. Progressively, we gave them more and more freedom. They got permits and driver's licenses, and now large portions of their day, we have no idea where they are or what they're doing. Most of the time, we don't have any idea where they are. Most of the time, we don't know what they're doing, and that's exactly the way that it should be. What Chris and I both strive for in parenting was a state in which our children would become independent adults who were not controlled by helicopter parents or by fear of punishment, but rather, we worked so that our kids might become people who are controlled by hearts driven by a desire to please and to honor God. I had a professor in uh, college named Dr. Krabendam. He was a six-foot-eight Dutch guy. And he used to say, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. That's where the kingdom begins. Recently, one of our children had the choice to take one of two courses um, in school and several people weighed in on what direction they should go. And on one side, there were several voices saying, hey, take this class. And on the other side, there were some other voices saying, hey, I want you to take this class. Krista and I gave our opinion to this child. But ultimately, we said, hey, we're leaving it up to you. Later on, I went and talked to this child who is occasionally prone to some people-pleasing, not unlike their father. And I said this, look, hey, inevitably, somebody's going to be disappointed with the decision that you make right? You're either going to disappoint the people over there. They're going to be mad at you or disappointed that you didn't go their way. Or on the other side, you know, maybe that you disappoint me and mom. You know, maybe you choose something different than how we advised you. But one of the things that I said to this child was, I said, I want to give you the freedom to do what you think is best. I want to give you the freedom to do what you think God would have you do, even if you know that's different than what mom and I advised you to do. I was able to do this because ultimately, what I desire for our children, and I think what God desires for us, is that our hearts would be surrendered to him, ultimately. Before Jesus began teaching publicly, John the Baptist prepared the way for him by preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's message was so radical because what he was doing was he was telling religious Jewish people that God's kingdom wasn't a matter of ethnic identity, but was rather a matter of their hearts, right? Jesus affirmed this. He echoed that same mass message just a few verses later. After his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus affirmed the heart of the kingdom uh, to one of Israelites, the Israelites' religious leaders later in John 3, where he said this. He said, truly, truly, I tell you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Again, what Jesus and John were saying is that ultimately it's an issue of your heart. That's where this kingdom begins. God can rule over the world, but what he truly longs for is to rule over our hearts. That's again what Krista and I desire for our children. We desire for them to get eight hours of sleep each night, or ten, depending on how old you are. We desire for them to write papers early instead of waiting till the last minute. We want them to eat lots of fruits and lots of vegetables and lots of clean protein. We want them to read great books. We want them to get exercise. We want them to be faithful spouses through the ups and downs of life. We want them to be self-sacrificing parents for their children. We long for them to demonstrate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We want them to love their neighbors as themselves and to love God, not to earn something, or because they fear something, but because their hearts simply belong to him. If you do a quick Google search for the kingdom of God, you'll most likely see the following definition, the rule and reign of God, the rule and reign of God. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray thy kingdom come, I think what he's doing is he's asking for them and for us to pray for a world in which hearts and minds and families and churches and communities and cities and entire cultures willingly come under the rule and reign of God. Now, when I say that, some of you may automatically be thinking, what would that kingdom even look like? Would it look like the Middle Ages in England? Because I don't think I want to go back there. Would it look like a theocratic state in the Middle East? I don't think I want to go there. Jesus, however, was constantly telling us what his kingdom would look like. He said that it would be filled with people who are truly and deeply humble. He called these people those who are poor in spirit. Maybe you've met some of them before. He tells us that the kingdom would be filled with people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says that the kingdom is going to be filled with people who are merciful. Jesus said his kingdom would be filled with people who are pure in heart. You can tell that these people say what they mean and mean what they say. Jesus says that this kingdom would be filled with people who are peacemakers, not peacekeepers, but peacemakers. It's a place where gossip and slander and lying are not welcome. And Jesus tells us that not only is murder unwelcome in his kingdom, so is calling someone names in order to hurt them. Jesus tells us that his kingdom will be populated by people who don't just love their neighbors, but who love their enemies as well. Now, much of what I just referred to is located in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Not all of it, but some of it. And whenever I read that section of Jesus' teaching, that is the Sermon on the Mount, about halfway through, I always think the same thing. I go, oh my word, this is impossible, right? There's no way I can live this way. There's no way I can do this. But then I remember that living that way is not actually up to me. I need to remember that God is on my side. More specifically, God the Holy Spirit, and Jesus are all on my side. They're all bringing God's kingdom to earth. They're all bringing God's kingdom into my heart. Listen to the words of Colossians 1. It says this, "'We continually ask God to fill you "'with the knowledge of his will "'through all the wisdom and understanding "'that the Spirit gives, "'so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord "'and please him in every way, "'bearing fruit in every good work, "'growing in the knowledge of God.'" being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. It's not easy. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, we've been bought out of slavery, the forgiveness of sins. And so, our hope is not in our ability to bring the kingdom in, but instead in God's ability to bring his kingdom to us. That's exactly why we pray, right? We ask God to do what we cannot do. And it's why we pray, our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I pray that we would see your kingdom. Father, I pray that we would um, see it happening across the globe, whether that's in Africa or in Korea, Father, or in South America. I pray that we would see your kingdom coming. Father, I pray that we would see your kingdom coming as um, people are forgiven. Father, I pray that we would see your kingdom coming when gossip and slander is held at bay and instead people remain silent or they speak the truth. Father, I pray that we would see your kingdom coming as we love the poor and as we love the needy. Father, I pray that we would indeed be those people who are marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Father, I pray that your kingdom would actually come in us. Father, I pray that your kingdom would come in our husbands and in our wives and in our children. Father, I pray that your kingdom would come in the hearts of the people of seven hills fellowship father and i pray that as we surrender our hearts to you and as we let you have your way in our hearts father that this church would be changed and father i pray that as this church would be changed that uh, that then the community might also be changed father that we might care for those who have no one to care for them that we might love those who are difficult to love father that we might stand against evil and that we might stand up for good and father i pray that this kingdom would come because of your work in us. We pray, Father, that our kingdom would come. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ.